Hello and welcome to Spiritual Shit, your guide to the down and dirty of modern spirituality. This podcast is a place for people wanting to discover more about spirituality, where we can get weird about ghosts, mediumship, aliens, psychics, religion, new age, awakening, ascension, starseeds, channeling, holistic health, philosophy, and even dating. Some shows will be just me rambling about my mystical experiences and discoveries, while other shows will have guests to open up new perspectives and views. I hope you'll join me on this journey as we discuss and open up what spirituality in today's modern world really looks like. Remember to like and subscribe to never miss an episode and hit me up at thelovelyleah.com or at thelovelyleah on Instagram so we can connect. Become a Patreon supporter to get access to behind the scenes of our guests, freebies, early access to new episodes, discounts on merch, and more. Dr. Rebecca Ray is a pilot turned clinical psychologist, now author, speaker, and student of life on a mission. To use a science-backed heart and hard truth approach to helping big picture thinking entrepreneurs live a life that's fulfilling, unapologetic, and free. Her message centers on the task of living bravely in the truth of our experiences as finders and seekers of inspiration and connection. At the age of 15, she knew that she wanted to be a psychologist and three years later was working towards her psych degree. But an ambitious yet fragile Rebecca at the time found herself taking a rather large detour to become a pilot following in the footsteps of her grandfather. What she thought was an exciting challenge was really a bone-deep fear and sabotage masquerading as ambition, so she decided to humbly step out of her pilot's uniform and back into her passion. She said goodbye to self-sabotage and unhelpful scripts and hello to radical courage towards living the life she truly wanted. Rebecca has been a clinical psychologist for the better part of two decades and since left the traditional work practice to inspire people on a global scale. She's the creator of digital courses, including Overcoming Self-Sabotage from Paralysis to Progress and Radical Courage, Transforming Fear into Freedom. And she's also the author of The Art of Self-Kindness, The Universe Listens to the Brave, and Be Happy, 35 Powerful Methods for Personal Growth and Well-Being. Please welcome Rebecca to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Spiritual Shit. I'm your host, Aaliyah Lovely, and today we have Dr. Rebecca Ray. Say hi to everybody. Hi, Aaliyah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being on. I'm I'm thrilled to have you on this side of the world (laughs) right now um, in this interview because there was something about your account that I was just drawn to. And like your clinical psychologist and like some of the wording that I've seen you use and the things that you've been able to speak about, I was like, you know, she's got she's got another angle here. Like (laughs) she's a little deeper into some universal stuff. Like um, I think a lot of, at least in American clinical psychology, there's a lot about, um, you know, very traditional things and things that are in very much a structure of psychology. But I find that your words seem to have gone outside of that and you had a more, uh, what I would call feminine, almost feminine energetic approach to it. And it just appealed to me. So I felt excited about that. Not only that, um, you've written three books that are amazing and thriving and doing well. And um, they just appeal to me a lot. So before we get into that, um, can you give people a little bit about your background and what led you to this space? Because today we're going to talk about, um, you know, stopping self-sabotage and what that looks like within our humanity and following our purpose and getting into what empowers us as people and what our passions are. But I really want to hear about how you arrived there. Yeah, absolutely. I I love that you picked up on the, I guess, the different angle that I bring to my work now that I'm online. 
um, because that was actually born out of being incredibly burnt out in clinical practice. So I spent a lot of time in private practice, many, many years. And in that time, honestly, I just saw too many clients and I ended up exhausting myself uh, decades before I thought my career as a clinical psychologist <laughs> um, uh, would end. And I honestly thought I'd still be doing therapy when I was 75. Mm. And I found at 35, I was starting to feel burnt out. And it really, you know, part of my own self-sabotage was this need to um, show up, this need to be uh, providing for my clients and this need to be seen to be doing all the things, um, getting people's approval, pleasing my referrers, pleasing my clients. And um, what that led to was that I gave everyone else the capacity to dictate over my personal resources, my time and energy and my uh, emotional, mental um, and practical energies. And I got to the point where I just had to walk away and I didn't actually ever know whether I would return to psychology. I just knew that, knew that I needed a break and I was pretty devastated having to do so um, because it meant at the time that I felt like I was failing my clients, but I just had nothing left to give. And so when I walked away, I was faced with this dilemma about how to reinvent my career you know how on earth was I going to use the years of clinical practice and the eight years of university training Mm. how on earth was I actually going to continue using that if I couldn't see clients and I'd had a dream since I was a little girl to be a writer and I never pursued it because you know it's not it's not really a real job I'm not a, I'm not Liz Gilbert. And, um, (laughs) I just thought surely I can't make something of this. And so again, in a self-sabotaging way, what I ended up doing was putting my work out online in secret. So there was very much this sense of hiding. And that was also born of my, uh, very strong clinical training that you don't, um, self-disclose. You don't offer much of yourself to in the therapeutic space because it's supposed to be a blank canvas for the client. Mm-hmm. And so I was here trying to find out where I fitted in all of that. And now that I wasn't seeing clients, it enabled me to start telling more of my story, I guess. And uh, I managed to attract an audience despite the fact that I was doing uh, my Rebecca Ray page basically in private it wasn't on private but I didn't tell anyone about it Mm -hmm. and then it kind of evolved from there and over the last five years or so so has my voice my voice uh, my public voice and also my writing voice and what happened was I started accessing the themes around what really lit me up as a psychologist which is seeing people live bravely and meaningfully so I'd spent these years, you know, almost oh, over 15 years talking to people about their problems every day. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about something that was coming from a different angle. I wanted to talk about thriving, but in the way that I defined it, which is to live bravely and meaningfully. And so I started talking about the themes of overcoming 
ourselves, basically, overcoming the state of being human in order to make an impact on this world and to contribute in a meaningful way and to show up authentically. And so that's how it was born. Wow. You know, it's interesting. So while I was doing my, my behind the scenes research, I found out quite a bit about you and, and what you did and what the journey you had to take in order to get here. And I'd love, so first that you, you got burnt out by your, um, you know, psychology practice and clinical psychology practice, and then came into this position where you decided you wanted to start flying. Yeah. Which I, like- I find so entertaining because like, just, <laughs> I mean, it's a complete shift and utter like, you know, total different direction from what you were doing prior. Um, and I, I want to get into that a little bit because you took a, a massive jump into something completely different and allows yourself to take that massive risk of, you know, uh, feeling essentially feeling like, um, you know, this is not what I want to do anymore. I want to try a completely different direction. And a lot of people are really scared of that because there is a lot of feelings of shame of the investment of the prior direction that they took. So can you can kind of talk to your, our audience a little bit about what that experience was like and how you were able to find your authentic self again through that process? Yeah, this was sort of the first zigzag that I took. So it was way back when I was 18, I started flying 18 or 19. And um, I was at uni studying psychology at the time. And my grandfather was a private pilot. He had his own small aircraft and I loved flying with him. And I think part of my fragile sense of self, because I had a very fragile sense of self back then and a very fragile sense of self-worth. I started thinking, I wonder if I could fly a plane because surely if I could fly a plane, then I would feel worthy, you know? then I would be okay. Then I would be enough. And so that's what I did. I went and got my private pilot's license. And in doing so, I discovered that flying actually made me incredibly anxious. So I am the type of person that loves routine. I like like being at home. I like showing up to my computer each day and having the impact that I make in the world completely within my own control. You know, I, I dictate when I work, I dictate what I do in a day and, um, flying is incredibly different to that. It, it requires you to, I guess, receive all sorts of things that change all the time, the weather, what air traffic control will tell you to do, who else is flying in the air at the time, where you're flying, what the flight plan is going to look like. You know, it's, everything is different, not to mention the actual act of flying requires visuospatial skills that are not in my zone of genius. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm much more comfortable writing an essay than I am to, um, you know, kind of working out where I am visually in space. And um, what happened was because I'd invested, oh, I hadn't invested because my grandfather and my parents had invested in me. I thought that the anxiety at the time was what I had to conquer. So I don't like being beaten by my feelings, if that makes sense. Um, And even at that young age, I was like, well, obviously the answer is just to keep doing more flying and then I'll overcome the anxiety and I still don't feel worthy. And so surely if I make flying a career, then I'll feel worthy. Mm -hmm. Now, I know how nonsensical that sounds now, but at the time it made sense. And so 
I abandoned my psychology studies after I finished my undergraduate degrees just for a year and did flying full time. And I got a night rating, a multi-engine rating, an instructor rating. Um, I did my airline pilot theory training. Wow. Um, I, I basically just went and did a whole heap of stuff. But Aaliyah, I was so anxious. I never carried a passenger in my aircraft that wasn't also a pilot. Mm -hmm. And so I had gone and gotten all these licenses and was now a fully qualified commercial pilot and yet had never carried a passenger that wasn't also a pilot because I was so incredibly anxious. It was okay if I died, but I didn't want to be responsible for anyone else's death Mm -hmm. um, in case I crashed and burned. And as I tell this story, I'm completely dishonoring the fact that I could actually fly very well, but when you're doing something that is not in your wheelhouse day after day, it takes so much mental energy and effort that not only was I continually anxious, but I was also exhausted. And I got to the point where I was mildly depressed Mm -hmm. and I really had to stop and go, you know, what else do you need girlfriend to be, to really, look in the mirror and say, this is not the path for you. This is not working. And so in a huge cloud of failure, because I'd spent all this money that wasn't mine on my flying training. And I'd also kind of made these verbal aspirations to be a airline pilot known. And here I was having to admit that that's not where I was headed. I also won a scholarship for some flying training that was made public and was in the paper. Um, And Mm. so I was facing walking away from that as well and letting those people down that had funded that scholarship. But I was making myself sick. And I got to the point where I either completely compromised my mental health or I just sucked it up and brought some honesty to the process and changed direction. And so I sat down with my grandfather and my mum and dad. My grandfather is like the greatest love of my life. He's no longer with us, but um, Mm. he was never going to be, I could do do no wrong in his eyes. So he wasn't really an issue, but I was worried about my mum and dad. And they basically said, look, we could see that you're suffering and we just want you to do whatever's going to make you feel better. Yeah, And so I went back to psychology and um, kind of felt like I was coming home, I guess, in a sense, in that I was returning to using skills that were very much in my zone of genius. But it did take me a while to recover from that sense of failure and shame that is that was self-imposed. You know, no one else put that on my shoulders except for me. Mm. Yeah, that... That's a really powerful illustration because I think, especially for for our listeners, there are times in our life where we have to try something else. We have to pivot in some kind of way and we often can look at that as failure. Um, And in in your opinion, is that a form of self-sabotage? Yeah. Focusing on mistakes is a form of Mm self-sabotage. Now, I, I told that story based on how I was feeling at the time, but how I feel about it looking back is that it was actually an essential pivot. If we use the 2020 corporate term, um, uh, it was an essential friends episode where Ross is like, yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and that's that's kind of the frenetic energy <laughs> I was <laughs> I was in at the time. But when I look back now, I see how essential it was for me to learn about my life non-negotiables. You know, like what that taught me was that I have a way of working that works for me. I I like to show up at my desk all each day and do the same thing over and over again. I I used to spend a lot of time in clinical practice treating police and emergency services personnel and military personnel. And I remember one of my cops saying to me one day, um, God, I don't know how you do it, Rebecca. Like, how can you just keep showing up and doing the same thing every day? And because he was obviously, he was a traffic control officer. And so he spent the, his days driving up and down the highway doing different things, attending accidents and things. And yeah. what I explained to him was what changed for me daily was people's stories and how I got involved in people's stories and the impact that I could make while sharing that space with their stories. But what didn't change were the things that made me feel in control, which was, um, you know, what time I worked, when I showed up to my desk, what days I had off, that kind of thing. That really works for me. They're, that kind of routine is a non-negotiable for me. And flying, flying taught me that. And so I think for a time I was definitely self-sabotaging where I was just focusing on the fact that I had failed. And that was in my twenties, you know, in my angsty twenties where I was trying to be who I thought the world wanted me to be. Mm. But now, now that I'm like 41, I look back and I just want to wrap my arms around 20 year old me to say, you know, the best thing you can actually do is be who you need to be because in my experience, people are far more receptive when you show up authentically and yeah. you set boundaries around what you need than if you're trying to turn yourself inside out and upside down to please them. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Um, there's, there's so much, so much honesty in that statement because we do do a lot of things to perform for the other people around us and uh and try to show up for things that don't feel authentically or vibrationally like an alignment for us and so um i i want to shift gears just a little bit and go into you have a book called the universe listens to brave yeah and there there's some something about that sentence just really really resonates with me um particularly because when i talk to my own clients and we talk about um limiting beliefs and self-sabotage and we get into uh, areas and mantras and think like basically when I'm working with them is that we look at the energetic frequency of the wording that they're using uh, around what it is that they're trying to do and or uh, progress through. And so um, the universe listens to brave and how in so many words, um, you know, from, from my clients, it's like, what would you like to replace that sabotage with? Like, what are you first? We identify, what is it that you're telling yourself? Like, I, I can't do this thing. Or like you said, I love that you mentioned that you, these things uh, cross the boundaries of your non-negotiables mm -hmm. and how often we do that, particularly with work. Um, even sometimes with boundaries, with friends, family, things like that, there are non-negotiables. Um, if we are clear with ourselves that this is, this is somewhere we don't want to go. This is something that doesn't feel in alignment with us. This is something that's vibrationally not a match for us. And so what is what does it mean to you to override those limiting beliefs and that self-sabotage and get into a space where we can emanate the vibration of brave so the universe will listen to us? I love that. And there's I think there's two things I want to speak to there. Mm -hmm. 
let's come back to um, something that's vibrate vibrationally in alignment or not. We need to come back to that because there's something I want to add to that, but essentially for limiting beliefs. So my approach around limiting beliefs is that we can't always spend energy on sitting in our minds, trying to change what our minds are saying. Mm-hmm. Our minds are essentially wired as safety mechanisms. Their job is to constantly point out problems or threats because once upon a time, that's what helped our ancestors to survive. Mm-hmm. And so I very much come from a place of action to create evidence. When you take action to create evidence, brains are evidence loving things. And you, the more evidence you create, the more then that becomes wired into your brain as a neural pathway that can then be associated with a new belief. Mm-hmm. And so what self-sabotage does is it erodes our sense of self-trust. It actually erodes the quality of our relationship with ourselves because essentially you're saying you want to do something, but you're doing something else. Right. And so you start to lose trust in who you are and how you want to show up in the world. If you can change your actions first, even if your mind is saying, you know, I don't, I can't be bothered to get up and exercise today. Um, It's too hard. It's going to hurt. I really don't want to do it. You can say those things and yet you can still put your active wear on and go for a walk. So Minds don't actually control what we do. They can influence us, but they don't directly control us. And we don't directly control them, even though we can influence our minds. Mm-hmm. So the key is kind of, you know, the whole whole thing that your mind is saying, I can't raise my right arm. And yet you lift your right arm while you're lift. Um, sorry, while you're having that thought, what you're doing is you're creating actions that give your brain evidence that things can be different. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, what that does is it reshapes those beliefs in your head about who you are. Because when self-sabotage becomes a habit, what happens is it becomes, can be shaped into how you see yourself. So it actually becomes your identity. Mm-hmm. So let's say that the area that you are self-sabotaging is health and wellness. And you decide that your identity is someone who's just not fit mm-hmm. um, or not healthy. As you start to develop the actions to go in a different direction, you're creating the evidence to then create a new identity about yourself. Um, Action first, beliefs then change second because brains generally take a a long time to catch up because neural (laughs) pathways don't just disappear. You know, you can't just turn them off those neural pathways that have been associated with that, those unhelpful habits. Mm -hmm. And then what I wanted to say about, something being vibrationally in alignment. Actually, hold on a second. Did that make sense? Do you want me to yeah, clarify it? Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Okay, cool. <laughs> but just while I'm thinking about it, about the vibrationally in alignment thing, I want to speak to that because I think sometimes Instagram, <laughs> Instagram has a fair bit to answer for in mm-hmm. these small, pretty little squares that basically encourage people to only do what feels good. Mm -hmm. But you know what? If we only ever did what feels good, then we wouldn't do anything that was brave really Mm -hmm. because courage shows up when fear is also present. Otherwise courage doesn't need to be there. And so by, by definition, being courageous feels uncomfortable. And so 
I want to give you an example. I'm writing my fifth book right now. I've just finished the manuscript from my fourth and now I have to write my fifth on a time frame that's tight because basically 2020 just turned my life upside down mm-hmm. and it's taken me a while to recover. <laughs> and now if I was going to talk about book writing as something that feels good, I just couldn't. Those two things don't belong in the same sentence <laughs> for me. Um, despite the fact that my job is basically an author. Yeah. I just, it doesn't come easily. You know, I, I have to really work to get my butt in the chair and I have to really work to stay there through the shitty first draft and through the, you know, I guess, wrenching of words to get them into some kind of semblance of order that my publisher will be um, happy with. That process for me requires a whole lot of space to sit with the discomfort and just get the job done. And so I just want to clarify, at least from my point of view, vibration, something that's vibrationally aligned doesn't necessarily mean something that feels good because if you're only going with something that feels good, then you'll constantly be on a roundabout of self-sabotage, avoiding any kind of discomfort that comes along. And the thing is we can't grow without discomfort. So Mm -hmm. if you keep avoiding the discomfort of growth, then your comfort zone will shrink and your life essentially will contract in upon itself and the less expansive you'll experience the world. This is such an important distinction to make because vibration alignment, I talk in frequencies and uh, loads and loads and loads of episodes on my podcast. We discuss what that looks like. And there are so many times vibrational alignment can be a part of your intuition that says, okay, I understand the direction in which I'm meant to go, but self-sabotage will come in and say, that's going to be uncomfortable. So I don't want to do it. And it's like, this is still the path that you need to go, but the self-sabotage will say, you can't do hard things, or Mm -hmm. this is going to feel uncomfortable. This is going to be hard, you know, and and this is going to cause discomfort. It will keep you in your box and keep you from growing. And um, it's something even for myself, like um, in this process, I'm actually considering uh, going into hypnotherapy uh, school to do, get a degree in that. And I'm, I'm stoked about it, but there's a part of me that's like, Oh, I don't know, like this, uh, going back to school and doing this, you know, um, can I be okay without doing that? And I do feel super drawn to it, but it, it's still that, like that's little self-sabotage that comes in, no matter how like trained we are or how like, you know, a lot of us who have been working on some of our own shadow work and all that, all that stuff, you know, of getting our therapy and whatever. Um, there's still that little element that, that kind of sneaks in and says, especially with the subconscious, right. Um, trying to keep us protected in some kind of way, even the ego in acting in that and saying like, this is going to be hard. What if you fail? What if, what if this makes you upset? What if this delays, blah, blah, blah. And so checking in with yourself and getting to a space where you say, okay, I recognize that this is in vibrational alignment for me, but this might be uncomfortable. And, and what does that look like to continue through that process to able to enable us to get to a space of growth? Because like you said, the universe listens to brave. And I love that mention that you said about courage, courage wouldn't need it to, wouldn't need to exist if we didn't have some, some part of that alignment to grow through. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That, and that's, that's what this is about. I think for me, 
when we're, so that line comes from a quote that I actually wrote myself when I'm pretty sure my wife and I were considering having a baby mm-hmm. and I was petrified. I'd never wanted children before and mm-hmm. I'd never found a love safe enough to be able to even entertain the idea of bringing another human in the world and right. finding her meant that I did have that love that was safe enough. And so we were entertaining this massive undertaking, um, not to mention there's a whole other life that depends on that. And the quote was, she was never quite ready, but she was brave and the universe listens to brave. And it's been the most popular quote that I have ever written. And I think that's because most people really resonate with this idea that even when we're not ready, like you're describing this drawn sense to hypnotherapy and yet there's a part of you that is pulling back and pulling back away from the anticipated discomfort. Um, But this is how we do hard things. We show up even when we're not ready and we move through that discomfort to find this amazing growth on the other side. And I think that's the most important part of self-sabotage recovery is understanding that because self-sabotage largely happens subconsciously, because that's the way we're wired, we will naturally avoid pain before we even seek pleasure. To be able to bring awareness to that um, process and then come back into a place of consciously seeking the discomfort for growth is a whole new world when you've been largely driven by avoiding discomfort and therefore experiencing your life from a very small, shrunken version of yourself. So it's, it's interesting because self-sabotage in a lot of ways, um, it, it is, it's what keeps us small. Yes. <laughs> um, it keeps us from, from growing. Now, I, like as I, I saw that some of your work talks about disconnection from your future self, procrastination, um, types of actions when discomfort shows up and, uh, and some of these habits. So like for our listeners, um, who maybe they're not conscious that they're self-sabotaging, maybe for them, their limiting beliefs are, are their identity and are very truthful for them. So how could one identify when they're self-sabotaging? First and foremost, I think a layer, it's a feeling. Um, and that feeling is when you have identified with the limit, limiting beliefs themselves, the feeling can be quiet and deep. So it's quite difficult to find at times Mm -hmm. um, because it's an intuitive feeling of being out of alignment with who you want to be. Um, And I think the most practical technique I can give you and our listeners to be able to determine is this self-sabotage or is it not self-sabotage is to ask your 80 year old self. So If you have the, imagine you have the blessing of getting to 80 and you're sitting on the side of your bed, (laughs) contemplating which chair you'll sit in today, um, ask her or him or however you identify what they think about the thing that it is that you're stuck on. Mm. So for instance, I had one of my students from my self-sabotage course asked a question recently where she said she's, she almost feels addicted to buying online courses, Mm -hmm. but it's not like those online courses for her sit 
in a folder on her desktop and she never touches them. She actually goes through them all and gets huge amounts of benefit for her self-development and self-development is a huge value of hers. But what she was essentially describing was there seems to be a, an imbalance of the directional energies of her time, money, and other personal resources um, that are stopping her from being able to perhaps just take a break from learning for a while, which I think is actually really useful. Mm -hmm. um, I think as much as ongoing learning is powerful, I do think we need breaks in between to integrate what it is that we're learning at an identity level. Mm -hmm. And so what I spoke to her about was being able to um, take this conversation and have it with your older, wiser, calmer self. And what does your 80 year old self say about this? Because that gives us usually an outside perspective, enabling us to make a decision around, is this fully in alignment with where I am today and what my needs are today? Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Like looking into the future. <laughs> exactly. <Asking laughs> yourself. Um, Sorry. No, that's fine. Um, there is, there's so much honesty in that. Like, I, I love how you talk. I get, feel very contemplative. Um, <laughs> there's this, there, for that's a, a huge compliment. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, there is, so, okay, let's, let's get into even deeper. Um, self-sabotage and its relationship with imposter syndrome. I'm not even going to ask you a question. I'm just going to let that <laughs> statement roll and you like channel what comes to you. <laughs> imposter syndrome is, uh, well, basically all of this is based in fear. Mm -hmm. Imposter syndrome, if you've never heard the term for our listeners, is essentially this belief that you don't belong where you find yourself, you're not good enough, um, you'll be found out as a fraud. It's this belief that you won't be competent to do the things that are being asked of you. And that's all based in fear. Fear for me is a surface level emotion. And what's below that is a questioning of self-worth. So the two are interconnected for me when imposter syndrome shows up, that's a sign for me that there is a deeper disconnect from self for the person suffering from imposter syndrome, where they are actually questioning whether or not they're good enough at a whole person level, not just in their work or wherever it is that they're trying to, you know, imposter syndrome can show up for all of us at various times, especially when we're leveling up in our, uh, careers or when we're showing up. I even had imposter syndrome a little bit when I first became a mum. I'm like, mm -hmm. I, sure, I have a baby, but how can I call myself a mum? Because I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And as we experience it a little bit, as long as it doesn't stop you from doing the things that you want to do, it's not a problem. And this is the same with self-sabotage at large. We all self-sabotage to a, to a certain extent but it's when it becomes a habit or when it actually changes your identity that it becomes problematic when it starts taking resources from you. And so imposter syndrome is inherently related to this idea that you're not good enough or that other people are going to judge you as not being good enough and you'll get found out. And this is then about coming back to 
how you see yourself and the relationship between self-trust and self-belief. And those things also come from action that is aligned with your values to create evidence for your brain so that you can, your brain can actually trust you to do X, Y, and Z. Mm. Assuming it doesn't create, you know, the level of panic that I experienced when I was flying because I was so out of alignment with the skills that I was using. So I think one of the things, one of the things that's really important to add to this conversation is that fear in our day-to-day lives, you know, we're not roaming the earth with woolly mammoths mm-hmm. and saber tooth tigers. Fear is often there as a messenger that you're in unfamiliar territory mm. or that you're, there is something unknown ab- about the outcome. It's not necessarily about death or survival. And um, the thing that most people don't necessarily understand is that it doesn't matter that our fear is now so much more subtle because we still have the same physiological and psychological response. Mm-hmm. So your body will still react like you are facing a woolly mammoth, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's important to be able to distinguish, is this fear real and how am I responding to it in a way that actually allows me to remain in an expansive place in my life versus um, shrink because fear told me that I would be so much safer if only I stay quiet and back in my comfort zone, in which case nothing ever um, arises in the direction of growth. Wow. Yeah. Um, This is so funny because (laughs) right before, um, like a little bit before I answered the call, like we got on here to do this interview, um, I got a message that came through that someone says, hey, I have an opportunity for you to be interviewed on this news station, blah, 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 about your podcast. And my whole body went into fight or flight mode. Yeah. And I like, I got anxious and I was like, calm down. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, like this is something, a huge opportunity I've been asking for, I've been asking for it. And then here it is, it shows up in my DMs and I'm like, (gasps) but no, you know, like there's, there's aspects of me that, that are, are like, oh no, no, don't, don't take it. Don't do it. Don't, you know, whatever that fear shot up. And immediately I felt those, those elements of imposter syndrome that said, oh, you know, like maybe they're going to try and make a fool of you, or maybe they're going to ask these types of questions and have this angle and, you know, whatever, especially giving the stigma around a lot of spiritual things. And yeah. so I, I really just like immediately start, I'm still having heart palpitations as we're talking. <laughs> and just to, just to kind of explain to just our audience, so they know, like, we're all human here, you know, um, having that fear of being like, okay, this is, this is a larger platform. This is a larger thing. This is the direction you wanted to go to. You wanted to be able to, to do this on this level, blah, blah, blah. And, and still feel at the root in the base that, that, that sensation of, am I worthy? Am I good? Can I do this? Will I fuck this up? And I think that is so important to speak to because, um, for our listeners, please know that Whoever it is that you're looking at as a source of inspiration, the figure that you watch that you perhaps would like to emulate, they're experiencing this too. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go away. It, it, it simply 
uh, challenges you to sit with fear again and again and again, every time your comfort zone is sitting on the edge of being widened. And this is not how we overcome fear to then all of a sudden be okay with it all. It just doesn't work like that. It's, I think instead what you get better at doing is anticipating that that's going to be scary, but you're going to do it anyway. Yeah. So for those of us who are listening, who understand now from coming from self-sabotage and imposter syndrome, what are some practical tips or steps that someone can get to, to the process of becoming brave? The first thing is to define what brave means to you. So I'm really passionate about this particular definition part of the process because what brave is to me may not be what brave is to you. And it's really important to understand that um, we all have different values and we all have different, I guess, ways of living that we would be satisfied with at the end of the day. So it's up to you to decide what brave is for you and what that looks like. And then the second step is to look at (laughs) the uh, life that you have promised yourself that you're going to live someday and the life that you're living today and Mm -hmm. the disconnect between those lives, because there always is when self-sabotage is present. There is a life that you're promising yourself you're going to live and it exists in your dreams and your goals and If those things are never acted upon, then they remain figments of your imagination. So what is that life that you're dreaming of? And how does that compare to how you're actually living with your actions today? And as you sit in that discomfort, because it will be uncomfortable, as you sit in that discomfort, using that discomfort to connect with what would make your future self proud, And then breaking down the tiny steps that you can take in the direction of starting to make that someday life your today life. I should trademark that. That sounds really good. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. It's the first time I've thought of it in that language, but you know what I mean? It's just kind of bringing it back into making it your day-to-day reality now. Yeah. Yeah, that's something uh, even for myself personally, I've been working on because it has been, you know, quite the process. Like I know you started a podcast too. And, um, you know, to put yourself out there in such a way, um, you know, with your writing and with your voice and interviews and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's fun, right? Because it gets you to where you want to go. Um, but that process of becoming, it, it does hold a mirror to us. And it does beg us to, to look at like, okay, what, where is that gap at? And where does that at exist? Can we look at that? Can we continue to make actions that go towards that? Or will we stay in the space of fear? Um, can you give an example of your life where um, you found that you were really, really struggling with the self-sabotage and you, you decided to be brave? Yeah, I nearly sabotaged the best thing that's ever happened to me, which is my wife. <laughs> so when I met Nissa. I was actually, I was uh, 33 and I was convinced that I was going to be single for the rest of my life because I couldn't find the right man. Mm -hmm. And at the age of 33, I was experiencing even women close to me, like women who are related to me (laughs) 
putting pressure on me about when I was going to settle down and find the right man, like there was something wrong with me that I hadn't found him yet. And I had almost started to adopt an identity that there was something wrong with me because I hadn't found a man that wanted me in a way that I also wanted him, you know, like mm-hmm. most men were emotionally unavailable and yeah. um, oh, girl. maybe I just made those choices. <laughs> and um, my six foot four cowboy hadn't kind of come in on his horse and swept <laughs> me off into the sunset yet. And so I had actually um, convinced myself that I was going to be single forever. And I decided that if that was going to be the case, then I was going to create a life of meaning based on my bucket list. So I started ticking things off my bucket list. I went to Africa by myself and had a life changing trip over there. And um, then I came back and I thought, okay, what's next? Well, I'll learn to play piano. I used to play piano when I was a kid, but not for very long, just for about a year. And I thought I'll, I'll pick that up again. And I rang the local music school and, um, I was assigned Nissa as my teacher. Nissa's a musician. And um, she was the only one that had a spot available on Saturday mornings when I wanted to have my lesson. And so I met her and she taught me piano for eight weeks or so before I started to realise that I was becoming obsessed with her and didn't quite understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even understand that she was a lesbian. Then. I didn't know. And I just didn't know why I looked forward to this half hour piano lesson so much. And long story short, we fell in love and it was the biggest shock to my system that I had ever experienced. Um, I hid her for a while from the rest of my, or well, I hid her from my family. I told my best friends about it, but I didn't, I um, didn't tell my family for some time. And then I had to sit with, uh, this idea that I was going down a path that was not at all what I had planned for my life. Mm. Um, I never planned to be in a relationship with a woman. I never planned to, I didn't even know how to comprehend that and, and how to figure out what that would look like. And so in the first year of our relationship, I spent a lot of time sabotaging how good our relationship was. So because it was so good and so easy, I was so used to relationships being full of drama. Um, I brought drama to the relationship. Mm. Nissa didn't. I did. I was the one that was constantly pushing her away because I thought surely someone couldn't love me for just me Um, because that's never happened before, you know? And so I constantly pushed all her buttons to see if she would eventually leave because everyone else had left. Um, in my relationships based on me just being me. And um, I went into therapy because I realized at that point that I was about to potentially ruin the best thing that had ever happened to me. And so I spent some months in therapy exploring all these issues that had showed up for me um, as a result of finding a safe love. Mm -hmm. And I had to really work through how valuable emotional safety is rather than being addicted to the drama of, you know, previous relationships that I'd had with men. And so I overcame my own self-sabotage to be able to really dive into those fears, basically take responsibility for the fact that I was bringing all the shit. (laughs) (laughs) 
and go and deal with my stuff and then come back to really embrace this love and what it means to be loved for who you are and be able to fully rest in a place of emotional safety. And if it wasn't for Nissa, we wouldn't even be having this conversation today. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have left clinical practice because that required me to get unsafe. I wouldn't have put my work out online. I wouldn't have accepted the book deal. I wouldn't, there's just so many things I wouldn't have done, but because I, I come from a place of emotional safety now, it's transformed my entire life. That's incredible. Uh, something you just said hit me in the gut because <laughs> you said that um, you never experienced someone loving you just because you were, you know, like you were inherently lovable um, because they would leave. Yeah. And so creating sabotage and trying to like push people's buttons to push them away. Um, it's funny before this interview, when we're talking about self-sabotage, I've always thought of that in, in a more singular route today of like the way in which we achieve our goals, but it even had, hadn't crossed my mind that like the way that we sabotage in our relationships, um, in order to kind of fit a narrative or identity that we've developed for ourselves, uh, particularly when we feel unworthy of that. And absolutely. I agree. I, I tend to teach in my courses from that original direction, like the goal directedness, mm -hmm. but it also shows up in our relationships a lot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it hits me in the gut. Cause I, 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 I'm someone who's, who's done that, or at least had that identity for myself, even now having a relationship and I haven't had a relationship in some time. Um, and finding someone who I feel is like my soulmate and seeing areas in which, um, things are, things are good. We have some complications like everybody does, but mm. me feeling like, do I need to run? Um, mm. you know, and knowing that I won't, but like feeling that, that discomfort, uh, the self-sabotage showing up out of those feelings of feeling like I'm not worthy and then still following through because I want to be brave. Absolutely. And for me, it was a changing of, um, being in a headspace of when this will end. Mm. to instead um, how do we nurture each other from a place that allows our relationship to thrive because this is going to be where I am forever. Mm. And <coughs> excuse me, I'm, I'm not saying that that's for everyone. I have friends who are in um, polygamous relationships um, or at least uh, have open relationships because they don't want monogamy forever. But mm -hmm. it's something that's important to Nissa and I. And so this emotional safety actually allowed me to start coming from a place of um, when am I going to walk away from this? Because I've done the same as well. I've run. Or when is he going to end it? You know, so you're constantly on tenterhooks of is this actually going to last to being in this space where I know full well that we are life committed and therefore the, I was going to say goal, but that's almost too, that's too clinical a term. Mm -hmm. I guess the, the foundation of the relationship come becomes different. It becomes how am I contributing to this other human being able to live the best life that she wants to live? How can I make, what can I bring to us as a dynamic, um, uh, I guess, but yes, ball of energy in the universe. What can I bring to that to ensure that she thrives? Um, and then in times where we're having hard times, it, cause we do, you know, everyone does. It's, it's a 
place of being able to come to that with uh, what needs of yours are present that are not being met and how can we look at doing that better? Because when you come from a place of emotional safety, the conversations might still be difficult, but there's not the same level of risk attached to them. It's not, it's not like someone's walking away at the end of that conversation and that's it, you know? Um, that's what I've discovered anyway. That's beautiful. I mean, I feel like we can talk for a really long time. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's super, super deep. Um, so what would you say, um, you know, for, you know, our, the, the lasting impression you'd like to leave on our listeners, what's something on your heart that you just feel like is really important to communicate to them right now? I want them to know that fear and courage exist together and you can access the brave parts of you, even though the scared parts of you are being loud. So mm. courage is the one that holds fear's hand to show it how to move forward into a place of growth. Is this a quote from your book? Yes. Okay. I was going to say, this is amazing. You should write that the, down. Yeah. It's, and it's something that I carry with me daily and say mm. to myself daily, what is courage going to, where is courage going to lead you today? Because I'm a professional scaredy cat. Mm. It's just what I do. I'm just scared. And I allow courage. I actually visualize courage holding the, my scared little hand and leading me forward into the next amazing thing that's going to happen because I never trust that it's going to be amazing. Mm. Um, instead, I come from a place of pessimism that usually um, surrounds people who have experienced significant trauma before. And I think the place of allowing life to show up in its fullest, richest version because you chose courage is what I would really like our listeners to understand. Beautiful. Well, we're going to continue over at the Patreon uh, to deepen even this conversation a little bit more. But before we go, can you tell uh, people where to find you? Yes. Um, you can find me at rebeccaray.com.au. If you want to explore self-sabotage more, you can go to rebeccaray.com.au forward slash free, F-R-E-E. And there's a one hour free um, masterclass training on how to overcome self-sabotage. And um, I'm on all the socials as at Dr. Rebecca Ray, one word. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show like this. I feel like this really hit me hard today and I do know that the collective will really, really enjoy this episode because particularly with what with everybody's going through right now and the shift and change and the fear that they're experiencing through the pivot of their lives, this more than any time have they needed to be brave. So thanks for having me, Leah. It's been <laughs> such a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, you guys, if you like this episode, please make sure to share it with someone that you love and rate and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. We will see you in the next episode. We're going to move over to Patreon. Until then, bye guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with someone you love. And if you're interested in becoming a client for energy coaching or card readings, find me at thelovelyaliyah.com to read more about what I do and to book your own session. And don't forget to add me on the lovely Aaliyah on Instagram for daily content and inspiration and hang out with me on Patreon. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you.